0: While you've been out on the road Waiting for a new episode We've been thinking of you what you need, oh yeah, yeah, now that the show's underway, I guess we can call it a day.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Bowfinger Minute Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1999 Frank Oz-directed comedy, Bowfinger. One minute of screen time per episode. I am your host for this week. My name is Paul Francis Sullivan. Those of you from the movie Minute world may know me as the host of and creator of the Paul Durham Minute. I've been a guest on many podcasts uh including indiana jones minute mash minute and uh this means something close encounters minute aliens Minute, a bunch of them i've done i am the host of the podcast locked on mlb where i talk about baseball every week i do five episodes a week before that i was host of the sully baseball podcast uh i've been an emmy nominated television producer filmmaker actor comedian and teacher and i am thrilled to be doing this week's episodes, episodes 41 through 45, of the comedy Bowfinger. This minute begins with Kit Ramsey walking through a dark parking lot and hearing someone and ends with Kit Ramsey basically going into a karate pose while afraid of something in the dark that he doesn't realize is actually Betsy the dog wearing high-heeled shoes. Now, there's not a lot happens in this minute. So, uh, and I have some very interesting guests coming up for upcoming minutes. So basically what happens in this is we see Kit, played by Eddie Murphy, walking through. He hears clip club. He hears someone walking behind him. His paranoia is up. We see that it's Betsy wearing the high heeled shoes. We also see that Bowfinger and his crew are pushing along a basically a dolly without the dolly tracks to get the shot of Kit Ramsey walking through the parking lot and getting his paranoia up. And you know, there's some really there's funny shots of uh, Steve Martin picking it, putting his head up above the 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 cars to make sure he's got the shot lined up and you know this is this is building up the tension and building up the paranoia that Kim Ramsey is feeling about the fact that he's he knows he's being followed and everything okay I mean that's basically all that really happens in this minute so I just want to break down a couple of things uh, I don't know what some of the other hosts have talked about but I will just break down some of my memories thoughts and why I think this film is is funny but it's also a a relic of of a time that we can't really go back to and also sometimes it's a force of frustration this film came out in 1999 which was a very very dense year for movies and by that i mean there are a lot of very big movies a lot of films that were um for the lack of a better word uh, important in our pop culture and it was the, there was all the anticipation for the Phantom Menace, which came out that year, obviously, um, and and the the impact and disappointments that that had. The the Matrix came out that year. Uh, oddly, the original choice to play Kit Ramsey, the Eddie Murphy character of the film, was Keanu Reeves, and Steve Martin had Keanu Reeves in mind. It was the producer Brian Grazer who had the idea of adding Eddie Murphy to it, of course. Brian Grazer, very skilled and Oscar-winning producer, had produced Eddie Murphy's big comeback, which was The Nutty Professor. So he you know, he went back to the box office well there. Um, there are other films like, you know, being John Malkovich was a personal favorite of mine. Uh, There's Something About Mary became um, the massive comedy hit of that year. That was The Year of American Beauty, which was... Let's face it, incredibly creepy. It was a year which had two of the most incredibly anticipated films in history. That both of them came out to, well, let's just say, um, mixed responses. I had mentioned The Phantom Menace. Um, this is not a Star Wars podcast. There's a lot of uh, Star Wars uh, vitriol on the internet. The other one was Eyes Wide Shut. I'm a massive Stanley Kubrick fan. And. Everyone knew this was Kubrick's final movie, and because he died, so the, his chances of making another one were extraordinarily slim. And that film came out, and it—I don't know—I—I I, I know some people love it. Uh, I, I'm and I'm as big a Kubrick fan as you're ever going to meet. Um, I'm not one of the people who loved it. The first time I saw it, I found it absolutely baffling, and the second time I saw it. Uh, I still was baffled by it. I revisited it every few years, wondering when am I going to finally love this movie. Um, Nope. I mentioned American Beauty, I believe, which is weird. The Straight Story, the great film by David Lynch, also came out the year. American Pie came out the year. There's a lot of films, a lot of reasons to go to the movies, and Bowfinger certainly was one of them. Um, uh, In tomorrow's episode that I'm doing with the great Victor Varnado, uh, I'm going to bring up a little bit about The Blair Witch Project which it's interesting that that film came out the same year as this. The 1990s, if you don't remember, was a decade that was the independent filmmaker just trying to slap a film together and get it seen and become the next, you know, uh, Kevin Smith to be the next Steven Soderbergh, to be the next Quentin Tarantino, to be the next... uh, you know, all the directors who just sort of came out and you know exploded onto the scene in the 1990s, there was a sense that the do-it-yourself, we're just going to slap together money, you know, El Mariachi this and have it land in a theater and become the new indie darling was something that was spreading like wildfire across the landscape of filmmakers and. Everyone sort of, and and I was one of them. I wound up making an independent film when I was in the late uh, in the early 2000s. Um, but everyone had the same dream. They heard about Clerks. They heard about Sex Lies and Videotape. They heard about Reservoir Dogs. They heard about El Mariachi. They heard about all these films that were made for minuscule budgets, slapped it together, found an audience in Sundance. The Weinsteins, back when people liked them, uh, would pick up the film and become a, they'd be heroes. And they were starting to make – those films were starting to make money. They were starting to be part of the, the public consciousness. They were getting awards and sometimes even Oscar nominations. And suddenly this idea of being a filmmaker was not simply reserved for the people who made it in the Hollywood system. But the idea of a do-it-yourself picture became, oh, just it was, it was the mindset of the 1990s, and Bowfinger sort of, sort of talked about the reality of that in a weird way. It's obviously the heightened reality. It's not a realistic movie. It's not. It doesn't have that documentary feel, and it ironically is a big budget hollywood movie with movie stars commenting on the people who were crawling up trying to join them through you know through the back door of independent filmmaking but there were many many bow fingers throughout new york and hollywood and probably all over the world i went to when i had my short films that i directed in the 90s and early 2000s i would go to film festivals and no matter where you were, whether you were in Florida, whether you were in Illinois, whether you were in Oregon, whatever film festival I wound up going to, you would meet tons of bow fingers. some of them were young just out of college, but some of them were older and saying this is I gotta put together this film i gotta I gotta take my shot at it and filmmaking was an expensive process, and there were the, the fantasies that came about of being able to make a low budget film like we saw with with figure at the beginning of the film when he has like a shoebox filled with like what was it like you know just a few thousand dollars. And of course it's not you can't make a film for that, but that sort of that that seed like it was planted in the head of so many people with filmmaking ambitions, kinda of like the move like kind of like Inception. It was there was an inception put into our heads of oh, wow, I could make the Brothers McMullen if I just slap together enough money, have a bunch of people do stuff for free for the love of it, and we could just shoot it. Next thing you know, it'll be the new Darling in Sundance. That was a kind of destructive fantasy that was placed in many people's heads, including yours truly. We put together enough money, and we made a film called I'll Believe You. We shot it in two thousand. And three, it saw the inside of some movie theaters in 2007. Uh, you want to know what frustration feels like? It's those years between 2003 and 2007, where we were wandering through the woods trying to get any, find any home for this movie. We ultimately did. We didn't make any money. Chances are you've never heard of our little movie, but we did finish it. And, of course, by then, the landscape of independent films was completely changed forever. But I digress. I'll talk a little bit of why in tomorrow's episode. But you always met people like these people, like Bowfinger, existed all across the country. And there there was an element of you need to have creativity, you need to have drive, and you also needed to have an element of being a salesman, and um, maybe even a little bit of a con man. And of course, that's one of the things about this movie that is funny and also brought in, looked into the window of the mind of people at that time to say, yeah, you almost have to con your way into this. You have to almost lie your way into this, pretend you're someone you're not. The whole idea is you're pretending to be a big shot when you're not. You see that in this early scene when Bowfinger is next to Robert Downey Jr.'s character with the pretending he's on the phone with, you know, closing a big deal. That whole element of we, I have to do anything. Doesn't matter what lie I tell, doesn't matter what law I break doesn't matter if I'm being dishonest with people or trying to rip people off. Because in the end, the end will justify all those means. And those things you did, bending the law, bending the truth, bending the trust, all those things will be part of the colorful history of the making of this film. Like Robert Townsend maxing out his credit cards to make the Hollywood shuffle. You know, like You know, the people selling, you know, uh, people selling their plasma to raise the money. Believe me, I met a lot of these people. I worked with a wonderful filmmaker when I was in college at New York University when the whole Miramax scene was exploding in the early 1990s. And again, I'm not, uh, you know, obviously the Weinsteins were horrible people and what was happening behind the scenes, you know, was not public knowledge at that point. We just knew there were these You know they were these super aggressive people who were gobbling up as much cheap independent projects and throwing them into movie theaters and giving, you know, making filmmakers who would never have gone through the the studio system suddenly became stars, and so everyone had Sundance and Miramax floating in their heads, and when those films became box office hits, hell, when Pulp Fiction became not just a cult hit, became a legitimate mainstream blockbuster. It sort of raised everyone said, "Oh my God, this is what we're striving for, evidently." And I was at NYU when this was when when this was started. Uh, uh, Pulp Fiction came out during my senior year, or just after my senior year at NYU, and we were all filmmakers thinking the same thing and thinking about, you know. I was working – as I mentioned, I worked when I was at NYU with a wonderful filmmaker named Matthew Harrison uh, and who I still remain friends with. Matt Harrison was this character from the Lower East Side of Manhattan who would make very low-budget movies. I worked on one called Rhythm Thief, which made some, some festivals, got a studio release. Um, and led to him getting a, a bigger budget film called Kicked in the Head, and then he wound up directing some television, including uh, uh, episodes of Sex in the City, which was shot in New York. But he, he was kind of a bow figure character in that he was the leader of this great parade that we, we all loved working with him because we saw how charismatic it was, and we would do anything to work on that picture and put it together. And I did a little bit. I, I held boom. I ran errands. I, I was an assistant editor. I just did anything I could. I worked with a, I did sec decoration. I did anything I could because we all were contributing to it. And it was super low budget, shot on a shoestring. Some things we didn't have the permits to do. And, but everyone wanted to be involved. It. There, was a, there was a fun, rebellious quality. And if you felt like a law was being bent here, or something was being, you know, I they caught us dumping garbage and I actually had to go to a court in New York um, and the film paid for my, uh, um, my infraction. But yeah, that all was part, everything that happened wrong or that was slightly shady became part of the mythology of the movie. That almost became like the, what you almost had to do To get the film made is to do some shady stuff. That almost gave it street cred. And so this is a film, Bullfinger is about that mentality of what the independent, underground, let's make it by any means necessary, uh, movement to just get a film done and made and maybe seen, maybe thrown in a festival, maybe maybe have that big premiere. So then you get the call, get the FedEx truck to come to your home. That was what was happening. Now, Bowfinger satirizes many, many things, obviously. And, uh, you know, the, the effect of Scientology in the entertainment industry, the effect of what stardom does to, you know, between, you know, Kit and his brother, how different human beings they are coming from the same place all these different things that it covers. But I, that element is shown in, in absolute, it's true colors in this particular moment where it's someone on the outside trying to get in and they will do everything they can, including stealing shots and manipulating reality of Kit Ramsey in the movie. And it's, it's one of the things I find really fascinating about the film when I'm watching it now. Here we are it's it's nearly a quarter of a century later. Oh my god, how old am I? It's nearly a quarter of a century later and it is a a bit of a relic. I'm going to be talking tomorrow with Victor Vernado about some of the things about the film that can't be you can't do it today because it's no longer relevant. So it's it's this film has become kind of a strange time capsule. Became a film of its time. You see that sometimes when you see a film which was good when it came out, but you realize we can't do this today. And I don't mean because of, oh, political correctiveness or anything like that. <clears throat> no, I mean the story wouldn't work today. The story wouldn't – the, the this, parts of this wouldn't work today based upon how we create media now as opposed to how you created media in 1999. It's kind of like the movie After Hours, which is one of my all-time favorite comedies, incredibly dark comedy made by Martin Scorsese in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Um, actually in Soho. Uh, The film came out in 1985. It's a brilliant movie, but it would not happen today because in the world of smartphones and ATMs and Uber, the story would be over in – Three minutes is a man who's trapped in Soho with he doesn't have any money because his money flew out the window of his cab and he's trapped in this uh, horrible ordeal. Uh, today he just grabbed he just pick up his phone, call Uber, and he'll get an he'll get an Uber up or he would just go to an ATM machine and get more money out. Um, much less interesting film. Great that it, but it's a great time capsule of how Soho was so different than the rest of the city in 1985 this is a wonderful time capsule of wannabes though the the just the absolute culture of wannabes that completely infiltrated the film world in the late 1990s there's another element to the film it's funny frank oz directed this this was the same year that he was in he was as Yoda in Phantom Menace and it was, I think the last time they used a puppet in the prequels. I think Yoda was completely CGI by the last prequels. Um, I know Yoda makes a cameo in one of the awful sequel films, but I'll be honest with you. I completely pulled the men in black and erase those films from my head. Um, But, but, you know, Frank Oz was back in the, the the public limelight as Yoda that year, and, and Frank Oz's career. You know, I'm sure other people have covered this. You know, he's had such a remarkably strange career, being the puppeteer behind so many classic Muppets. You know, Bert and Miss Piggy, Fozzie. Um, you know, Grover. Obviously, co co making films like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and the Muppet movies with Jim Henson and doing Yoda for Empire Strikes Back, which in many ways, that was kind of a dress rehearsal for the Dark Crystal for Henson's company to see if a realistic puppet would work on screen. And then he directed many films. He directed a film called The Indian in the Cupboard, which has a little cameo from a toy Darth Vader coming to life. There's a little Star Wars sketch. Which I remember finding that to be a fun, charming movie. Um, he directed... Um, uh, you know, dirty rotten scoundrels with Steve Martin. Um, you know, the the little shop of horrors. He had several films that were very successful and and had a good working relationship with Steve Martin. But I'll tell you one of the things that's frustrating about this film: the, Steve Martin wrote it, and obviously, it's. I find it strange when you think about that for a second that Steve Martin kind of was really punching down a little bit as a, you know, a big Hollywood star who became a star through the Hollywood system, punching down at the people who are trying to climb into the Hollywood world. But he also punches up his share too, talking, showing the, the complete shallowness of the big time directors like Robert Downey Jr.'s character and how Scientology can take over and become such a part of the culture of, you know, Hollywood stardom. Um, I, I, it's frustrating f- for me seeing Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy f- for this reason. Steve Martin's one of the funniest people who's ever lived. If his album, I've played his albums, like let's get small while the crazy guy I played him for my sons who are teenagers and they fall off the couch laughing. His And he's, written some wonderful things and has performed some wonderful things but his the output of great movies that he's had is frustratingly small the jerk is really funny a little sloppy but really funny and a great sort of introduction to steve martin as a possibility on camera as a movie star Uh, man with two brains has a lot of laughs in it um Pennies from Heaven is very daring. I mean, it's he, his career could have gone on a very different trajectory if that was a a, a box office hit. Uh, and he had a, you know, there were some films like, you know, All of Me has a lot of laughs in it. Parenthood has a lot of laughs in it. I've never been a fan of Three Amigos, but I know a lot of people are. I think L.A. Story is okay, but not great. But there is also a tidal wave of films that Steve Martin did for the dough. And again, I don't besmirch anyone for doing projects for the money, okay? They they have an opportunity to cash in and make millions of dollars. Go ahead. But it is frustrating when you know that you kind of wish there was always one for the show and one for the dough. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, do your Dreadful Pink Panther remake or do the cheaper by the dozen films or something along those lines or go like, okay, fine. Or the remake of the out-of-towners, which is, you know, okay, fine, whatever. You know, it's a, just a complete, you know, complete waste of his talents, complete, just sort of, all right, just a a cheap cashing in on this and that. But I wished he had some more all of me's in there. You know, I wish the number of films that he did, I wish that he wrote more stuff or created more stuff or tied together with another director who wanted to do something great with him. All these things I wish that Steve could have done at one time or another and that didn't. And when I see Bowfinger, a film that he wrote and a film that he clearly is interested in, he's clearly wants us to work. You see him with his undivided attention. You see him working and be like, oh, I get it. This is what I want. And so you see him trying, you see him making an effort and you can tell when he's not in some of his films. So when you see him trying and see him, you know putting his guts into it and the results is a funny movie. It made you say, Why couldn't you do that more often? And of course, that brings us to Eddie Murphy, who had one of the great introductions of any movie star, which is 48 Hours, which is not really a comedy. It's an action film that has a lot of comedy in it. But the scene with him in the redneck bar, where he says there's a new sheriff in town, yes, he's saying that to the rednecks. Are there really a lot of rednecks in San Francisco? Yes, he's saying that to the rednecks. But he's also saying that to the audience, saying there's a big new movie star. And I think the appeal of Eddie Murphy, at that period of his life, everyone lazily compared him to Richard Pryor. Um, Obviously, because they're both African-American comics who dropped F-bombs. But I think his connection is closer to Groucho Marx. And, in a weird way, also Bugs Bunny. The best use of Groucho Marx, the best use of Bugs Bunny, and the best use of early Eddie Murphy is they're taking on, all three of those those comic entities are taking on something that's kind of highfalutin and we're going to bring it down. Whether it's the cops, whether it's the Beverly Hills culture, whether it's Duke and Duke in uh, trading places, we're going to bring it down. We're going to take it out at the knees. And Groucho did that brilliantly. Obviously, Bugs is all the best ones. He's doing that, and Eddie Murphy doing that in those, especially in the early films. And they used him perfectly, absolutely perfectly. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, with that in mind, you know, and then he, you know, he continued making hits, and I think you can. St- Kind of like how you saw Steve Martin's career could have gone one very different direction if Pennies from Heaven was better received. Eddie Murphy's career could have gone that way, a completely different direction, had Harlem Nights, which was a box office hit, but it had it been better received, which was just looked upon as this gigantic vanity project written, directed, produced by Eddie. His name appears three times before the opening title is seen. And he could have done more, you know, I'm not a Harlem Knights fan, but his back was clearly into that. And he was trying to develop himself into more of like a, a leading man type. And you saw the capability of doing that in the original coming to America, which also showcased his, his, his comedy, um, uh, versatility. But when that didn't, really between Harlem Nights and Nutty Professor was a bit of a wasteland. Boomerang showed he could be a bit of a leading man, but the film was a letdown. Distinguished Gentleman, the Beverly Hills Cop remake, or the third one, the sequel to 48 Hours, which is unwatchable, the vampire film he did. I mean, they were just dreadful. Then he did Nutty Professor, which he's great in, but it also made, like, oh, we'll just put Who put Eddie Murphy in costumes and everything. And this film was a return to... It's good, because he played two roles in it, obviously. Um, But this film was a return to, what if Eddie was really trying? Really putting his back into it. And he showed that he could lampoon the superstar that he had become... And play the, the, the dorkiness of the brother of his brother in the film. But also Lampoon himself, Lampoon Hollywood, Lampoon the uh self importantness of the Hollywood star, all these elements he was able to futz around with and show that he had that ability. He still had he still had the comedic chops inside of him. Again, I wish that he had aligned himself with a director who he could respect and sort of you know and and would be able to pull out the best of Eddie Murphy in a similar way that Bill Murray discovered that he could work well with Wes Anderson. You see to this day, whether it's Dolomite or Dream Girls, the um, when he tries, he's still great. But most of the time, it's tough to watch. And that element of the, this, of finger is great that they're both trying. Both that their, back, their, their backs are both into it. But it makes you wonder, why is this the exception and not the rule? Why is this not the way it always is with these two? I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, but we got a lot to talk about, and we covered a lot of ground here. I've been a guest host on a bunch of these movie-by-minute projects, group projects, and I always like to do the first episode I do solo, because I've got a lot to say, and I don't want to step on the guests and pontificate and talk like crazy. So I wanted to get all my thoughts out of the way soon. We have some really cool guests lining up and uh, Victor Vernado is going to be in tomorrow's episode. I know uh, Michael Ferraro and Jamie Fallon I have lined up. Hopefully we'll get those recorded uh, as soon as we can. And uh, it should be a really, really fun week. And if you want to follow us, you can find the Bowfinger Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or at the main site, which is bowfingerminute.com. If you have time, Please subscribe, review, and like the show. You can follow me. I'm still on Twitter for the time being. I'm at Sully Baseball on Twitter. Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. Uh, You can also follow my podcast, which is Locked on MLB, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We're also on Twitter at Locked on MLB Pods. Or if you want to subscribe to Bull Durham Minute, my old movie minute podcast I did during the pandemic. That was a lot of fun. And as a... The great Jim O'Kane, who put this whole project together, can attest, I pop up all the time in different Movie Minute podcasts. There are hundreds of Movie by Minute podcasts that are available at moviesbyminute.com. I'm the Indiana Jones Minute, first one I ever did. And I've been on a bunch of episodes of that. And you can follow them uh, there. Bull Durham, all the other ones you want to check out, they are there. And uh, check that site out. There are a lot of great shows on there. And Look it. We're going to have fun this week. And tomorrow we're going to be talking about Minute 42. And we're going to bring in the great Victor Varnado to talk about Minute 42 of Bowfinger here on the Bowfinger Minute. And in the meantime, keep it together. Keep it together. Keep it together.
0: Keep it together, children that we'll see you again, cause there's always one more